Last week, we started on a journey through the book of Nehemiah. And that's where we're going to be for probably, I don't know, the next four or five months. You know how this goes once I get started. So we'll finish it when we finish it. Uh, the book of Nehemiah, is, it, it's in the middle of your Old Testament, but it happens near the end of the Old Testament. Okay? Uh, you know, you understand, your Bible's not written chronologically, so uh, it's, it's put in, in an order that's different than, than what it actually happened at. So the book of Nehemiah comes near the end of the Old Testament time. It's tied to two other Old Testament books, the book of Esther, which is about the political kind of environment of that world, and then the book of Ezra, which happened before Nehemiah. Esther happened before Nehemiah. Ezra happened before Nehemiah. Ezra is about the idea of uh, a group of people going back to rebuild the temple at Jerusalem. The the Babylonians had come and destroyed it. The people had been in captivity. Uh, the, The city is in ruins. Ezra goes back and rebuilds the temple. Um, Ezra starts to rebuild the walls, but he gets shut down. And then we come to the book of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah is in Shushan. Shushan is the palace of the king. Um, It's about 800 miles away. So uh, Nehemiah is the king's cupbearer, and we'll talk about that today. And he is in, uh, he's in the palace. He's doing his job. He's doing his thing. A brother comes along, and he says, hey, tell me, how's everything going in Jerusalem? And he goes, it ain't good. Um, It it, kind of looks like Harvey. I mean, everything's desolate. Uh, Ezra got the temple up, but that's all. Uh, People, there's no walls, there's nothing to protect the city, the gates are all burned up. Uh, People are pretty depressed and discouraged with it. And we talked about last week how Nehemiah's first response was to pray. And this morning, we're going to look at his prayer because there's a lot that we can learn that will help us as we go. So, uh, with that in mind, Nehemiah chapter 1 And here's where we're starting. We're starting in uh, verse 5. This is Nehemiah now praying to God. And by the way, Nehemiah prays for four months. We're going to talk about that next week. But this isn't just a, a, you know, I'm going to pray about once and forget it. This guy is burdened and fasts and prays and plans and everything else for four months. But here's the crux of his prayer. And I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you keep your covenant and mercy. I'm going to park on that word mercy in a little bit, but just keep that in mind right now. With those who love you and deserve your commandments, please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open, that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night. Again, this is going to go on for four months. For the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, if we have sinned against you, both my father's house and I have sinned. We're going to talk about that in a minute. I want to focus on the first part up there at the, at the beginning. And Nehemiah says this, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy to those who love you and observe your commandment. <laughs> the first thing that Nehemiah does when he prays is he focuses on the character and nature of God. Before he goes anywhere else, he, he's not telling God what God doesn't already know. But in rehearsing it, he is reminding himself about some things about God. <clears throat> so many times when we go before God and we pray, what do we do? We go right to what we want, right? I mean, think about it for a minute. You know, look, even children learn this. Mommy, Daddy, I love you. Will you give me money? What do they do? They praise you first, and then they ask something. 
We, by the time we get to adults, we don't even do that anymore. We just go right to asking. And so we come to God, and it's like, okay, God, this is what I want. And, and okay, thank you, God. No, Nehemiah, and here's a pattern for prayer for us. Nehemiah starts by focusing on who God is. And one of the things that he brings out, and this is important because Nehemiah understood his Bible, he says, you are a, you are a great and awesome God. You keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments. The word mercy is in a very, very important word, particularly coming at the end of the Old Testament. The word mercy, is a, it's a Hebrew word, and the Hebrew word is hesed. If you've ever heard people talk about, um, you know, there are three types of love, you know, and God has agape-type love, and that's a big thing, that God so agape the world that he gave his only son, he loved it that much. And we talk about how important that, that New Testament word love is, and the Old Testament, you know what the word was? Hesed. The hesed of God. Because hesed, when you start in the Old Testament in Genesis and work your way all the way through Malachi, you see this, this hesed concept evolving and diving and, and becoming intricate in everything. And let me, let me give it to you in a nutshell. Here's a question. Why does God stick with Israel? I mean... Come on, let's talk about the history of Israel for a minute, okay? Why does God stick with these people? I mean, he, he brings them out of Egypt, and within three days, they're griping, whining, and complaining. I mean, why doesn't God say, you know what? After what I did for you, if that's all the better you are, we're done. We're going to do a Noah thing. We're going to wipe everybody out. We're going to start all over. Why does God stick with them? And why does God allow them over and over and over again? Finally, he sends them into captivity, and you think, okay, great. They're going to get it now. Forty years in captivity. They go into the promised land. Everything's great for a while, and it doesn't take them any time at all before they've forsaken God. And God sends them into, God sends them into captivity. And in one situation, and, and, and they don't get it. And then with the southern kingdom, God goes, good king, bad king prosperity, you know, difficulty, prosperity, difficulty. They don't ever get it. Why doesn't God just wipe his hands off them and go, I'm done with you. You don't want to follow me? I'm done. Even to this day, God sticks with Israel. They rejected Jesus? Why didn't God just go, done? I sent, my, I sent my son, and you threw him out, and you crucified him. I'm done with you. Here's why. Hesed. Because when God commits, God commits. A great translation of hesed, mercy, is loving loyalty. God said, I'm going to be loyal, and I'm going to stick with you no matter what. You know me and my rabbit trail, so let me get, go a quick rabbit trail real quick. Hesed is the reason that God sticks with his people. When God designed marriage, God designed marriage to be a reflection of God and his people. It's a reflection of how God responds to his people. So in marriage, when a husband and a wife come together, it's the idea that they are together forever. What God hath joined together, let no man put apart. One of the reasons that God doesn't like divorce, he hates it, in fact. It's not a lot of things God says God hates, but this is one of them. Is because it mars that picture. It gives the impression 
that God would forsake his people. And so God says, look, I don't want that picture ruined. That's why I don't like this idea of divorce. That's why I hate it, because it mars the picture that I designed for marriage to be. And so that's the concept here. So what you see and you go, you know, well, you know, and I know some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You've had the pain of divorce. You know how hard it is. And you know how, how, how difficult and how much it breaks your heart. It wasn't something maybe you even wanted, but it's something that came into your world. And, and, and you know, my heart goes out for you. But I understand, but understand that from a, from a perspective of marriage, God says, it is a reflection of me and my people of hesed, this loyalty that no matter what, I'm going to stick it out with you. And so when Nehemiah starts to pray, one of the things that he says is, to those who keep your covenant and mercy with those who you love and observe your commandments. He says, God, look, I'm going to start praying by reminding you that you have always stuck it out with your people. You've always been there for them. Then notice what he goes on to say. He starts by saying, <clears throat> oh, go back one more, guys. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump into it this way. Um, For the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you, both my father's house and I have sinned. Time out for a minute. Nehemiah is in Shushan, the palace. Chances are good he's never even visited Jerusalem. Jerusalem, 800 miles away. Why is he taking ownership here? He's saying, I did this too, going on. Uh, now go to the next one, guys. Uh, he talks about this idea. He says, and confess the sin of the children which we have sinned against you. Both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you. We have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. He said, look, God, <clears throat> I realize the reason the walls are broken down is because of me and us. We have gotten exactly what we deserve. We were supposed to obey you. We didn't. You put us into captivity. He takes ownership of the problem. This is important. Because, see, we're in a world that doesn't want to take ownership for anything. I talked to a person this week, and in their job, they have to sign off for things. And, and, and one of the things that they said is they said, I can't get anybody to sign off. They said, I'm responsible. When I give somebody the the authority to sign in my place, they don't want it. And I said, how come? And he goes, because you got to understand, no one wants ownership. No one wants their name on a piece of paper. You want to know why we got all the regulations we got? Because nobody wants to take ownership. You want to know why we're in the mess that we're in as a nation? Because nobody wants to take ownership. Nobody wants to say, we, listen, as a church, you want to know why? Christianity is as weak as it is in this country because we're not taking ownership. It's our problem. We've allowed it to get diluted. We've allowed it to become weak. We have made it so that it's easy instead of hard. We have made it so that we, we take the easy path. You think about it for a minute. How do you pray? Do you pray, Lord, I want you to be honored and glorified in my life no matter what? Or do you pray, Lord, make this go away so it's easier for me? See? We, we don't, and we don't want ownership in anything. And here's the idea. Nehemiah's a king's cupbearer. He's in Shushan, a palace. He's 800 miles away, and he's going, this is my problem. This is what I did. Parents, hear me. 
One of the best things you can start teaching your kid is to take ownership of their problems. Well, how come you're doing bad in school? Well, that teacher, that teacher just got it out for me. Listen, I'm married to a teacher. You know what? The last thing my wife does is get up at the beginning of the day, at the beginning of the day and go, okay, I'm going to try to figure out how to make it miserable for this kid. My wife gets up every day and says, God, get me through the day. You know, it's get me through today. Look, kids get in a fight at school. What do we do? Okay, I want to know who started it. I want to blame somebody. Instead of going, what's your ownership in the problem? I see this all the time in marriage counseling. When couples are just, you know, pastor, can you talk to us? Here's what I do. I go in and I talk to the Tell the husband. I say, okay, tell me what's going on. Tell me from your perspective. Okay, great. Now, I want to go talk to the wife. Okay, great. Now, I go talk to the wife, and I'll find out their perspective. And then I bring them together in the room, and I sit down, and I say, okay, here's your ownership. Here's your ownership. You go, oh, no, no, no. It's always 100-0. No, it ain't. What's your ownership in whatever you do? Well, if they hadn't said that, I wouldn't have said, no, time out. What's your ownership? Why did you respond the way you responded? See, and when I get a couple who goes, yep, you're right, Pastor, that's my ownership. Yep, you're right, Pastor, that's my ownership. Great, now let's work it out. But if I get a couple who one party or both parties sits back there and goes, well, no, 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 I'm right, I'm right, I'm right. The second you start playing the I'm right, they're wrong, means somebody has to win and somebody has to lose. And if you haven't figured out marriage yet, marriage is all about compromise. It's not about win-lose. And the second you keep trying to fight the battle, it's just going to get harder and harder and more difficult and more difficult. So instead of sitting here complaining about your spouse, ask yourself what's your ownership in the problem. Oh, I'm perfect. It's all them. Really? You really want to stand up here and say that? Because I guarantee you, I can get like 30 people who can point out what you need to work on. Because we're all there. We all have areas that we need to work on. And, and like I say, so Nehemiah here, one of the things that you see right at the bat, he takes ownership in it. Then notice what he goes on to say. Because <laughs> this is awesome. Uh, goes on in verse 8. Uh, next one, guys. Remember. Now, <laughs> he's reminding God of this. This is great. Remember, I pray, the word you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I'll scatter you among nations. We did that, God. Take ownership of it. We were unfaithful. We're in this mess because we are in this mess, and we deserve to be in this mess. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast in the farthest part of the heavens, I'll gather you from there. I'll bring you to the place which I have chosen as my dwelling and my name. He says, all right, God, remember you said, We mess up, you'll scatter us and put us into captivity. We've done that, been there, we take ownership of it. But you also said, if we come back, you'll let us come back. See, here's the thing. Nehemiah knew what what the Word of God said. Nehemiah knew the character and nature of God. And he said, there's there's some debate. In the whole issue of prayer, there's some debate. Is prayer to change your mind or is prayer to change the mind of God? And the answer is yes. Because the Bible is very clear. There are situations where people have changed the mind of God. And God has done something different. 
There is also situations where it's changed the person's mind. And so I think both are true. In my life, I found it's more me changing. And it's more me starting to realize it. And as I start to realize the character and nature. And here's what Nehemiah says. He says, look, God, you know, you promised us that you would do this. And then notice what he goes on to say. Now, these are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. He says, look, God, here's the problem. Your name's at stake. And as long as those walls are all torn down, it's a reflection on you. And Lord, that ain't good. It's interesting. There's a little, there's a little deal. And you follow the children of Israel and the children of Israel in exile. There's, there's an interesting little statement that God makes to Moses at one point. God acts, and I think it's a test for Moses, but God actually looks at Moses and says, Moses, let's just wipe them out and start all over with you. Now, if you're Moses, and you've got an ego, and you've got pride, and you're thinking the entire nation of Israel could start over with me, yeah, God, let's do that. But it's interesting. You know what Moses' response is? Lord, you can't do that. Because your name's at stake. You brought these people out. These are your people. You have to take care of them. You can't abandon them. And I think it's a test for Moses to see where Moses' heart really is. And you see Moses responding in the right way. And Moses basically is saying the same thing Nehemiah says. He says, look, God, there's too much at stake right now. Your name's at stake. Lord, you need to fix this because people are watching and people are wanting to know whether or not you take care of your people. That's a pretty bold thing. And then notice what he goes on to say. Uh, Verse 11. Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, the prayer of the servants who desire to fear your name. He says, God, I'm asking that you'd hear me here. Now remember, this is before the cross. After the cross, we can go boldly into the presence of God. We have a mediator between us and God, Jesus Christ. But before the cross... God really didn't obligate himself to hear. And so Moses here, or Nehemiah here says, God, please hear me. Please listen. And notice what he says. Let your servant prosper this day. In other words, Lord, let me be part of the solution. I pray and grant mercy, grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Here's a question for you. Who's this man? The king. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, Artaxerxes. And here's the kicker here. In Ezra chapter 4, Artaxerxes has shut down the building of the wall. In other words, in in the book of Ezra, here's what happened. Ezra goes in, rebuilds the temple. He He gets started on the walls. The Samaritans come in and complain to Artaxerxes, and Artaxerxes sees it as a threat, so Artaxerxes makes a law that says you can't rebuild the walls. And here's Nehemiah now, as the king's cupbearer, saying, God, I want you to change the mind of the king, who is part of the law of the Medes and the Persians, who doesn't change. Nehemiah is asking an incredibly big thing of God. He's asking for something that hasn't been done before. He's asking this king to go and undo what he has done And that could only be done by God. And then he ends by saying this. I was the king's cupbearer. 
In other words, if God does this, God has to do this. I can't do this. I, my job is of cupbearer. I simply drink it to make sure he's not going to die. Take a sip, make sure it's not poison, hand it to the king. That's my job. But God, I want to be part of the solution. And in order for this to happen, you have to change the mind of the pagan king. And you're going to understand when we get in, in the next chapter 2 how bold this guy gets. And he gets incredibly bold. I, I, I mean, he crosses lines that you didn't cross in that culture. So let's talk about a couple of things that help us because we're getting ready to walk out of here and try to live our lives this week for the Lord. So, so let's talk about a couple of things. Here's the first thing. Nehemiah's burden, their issue became Nehemiah's burden. In other words, Nehemiah made it his passion. Look, God has impressed upon your heart something that you're passionate about. There's something that, you know, for my wife, I loved kids. But five-year-olds? I mean, really? Five-year-olds? Um, you know, I asked my wife at the end of the first day of school, hey, how'd it go? Don't poke me. <laughs> I have been poked all day. At night, I, got, I was afraid to hug her because I didn't know if I'd get slapped, you know, for fear that she thinks somebody was poking her, you know. Um, but, but, and, 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 but you know what? She, that's what she has a passion for. That's what she has a gift for. That's her thing. And I go into her classroom, honestly, after three minutes, I, I want out of there. You know, because let me tell you something. You let me walk into her classroom, and all of a sudden, all these little kids, they can all be sitting at their desk doing work. I walk in her classroom, all of a sudden, they start lining up. And I'm like, get out of my space. I, yeah, I just, you know, I get out of there as fast as I can. I try to text as much as possible. Um because that way I don't have to go into that room. But um, that's her passion, and I'm glad for it. I'm thrilled for it. And, and uh, my passion's church, and, and she wouldn't want to do what I do, um, even though she'd probably do it better. Um, but she wouldn't want to do what I would do, okay? Because that's my passion. Look, here's the thing. God has, you, you have a passion for something. Nehemiah here is 800 miles away. He's in an incredible world. But Nehemiah says, I'm not comfortable in my world. I'm willing to go wherever God wants me to go. And I have a passion, not just to hear about what's happening in Jerusalem, but to go fix Jerusalem. And God, I'm asking you to use me to fix it. That's a big step. And, and I want to challenge you to take, because what happens is life happens, and before you know it, you come to the end of your life and you go, you know what? The thing that I was passionate about, I never got to focus on or never got to do. And God has put that burden, God has put that passion in your heart for something. Nehemiah becomes passionate about helping Jerusalem go forward and being part of it. And so their burden becomes his burden. A second thing I think you see in this story is this. Nehemiah goes to God first. I don't know why we don't understand that. I don't know why we don't go to God first with our problems and our, our, our situations. We tend to go everywhere else first. 
We tend to talk to other people. We tend to go and try to get this and listen to that and do this and read that. And instead of taking it to prayer and God first. I'm going to take a little hobby horse ride for a second and then come back. But I'm going to tell you why I think that's true in our culture. Because I think we're afraid of solitude and silence. I I think we're afraid sometimes to just simply allow God to speak to our heart so we can speak to God. I think, I think, yeah, I don't want somebody to fall up here. Um, I think sometimes we get, we get, we lose that. And, and, and then we're so afraid of silence. And most of you, you're so tired that the second you sit down and you are silent, what happened? Go ahead, say it. You fall asleep. You know what? That's your body telling you something. You know, it's your body telling you something. I think Satan's greatest tool today is to keep us busy. I think Satan's figured out that if he keeps us busy, then we don't have time to think about God. We don't have time for God to speak to our hearts. We don't have time because there's so much noise. Because the second we get done with one thing, our mind shifts to what we got to do for the next thing. And, so we're, and, and, and it's easy if we've got something going on in the background. And, our, and I'm a background person. I mean, you go into my shed, there's a stereo system. You go to my garage, there's a stereo system. I mean, I have those things everywhere. Um, Alexa, I put Alexa any place that I think I'm going to spend time so, so she can play music for me, okay? <laughs> if you don't know what Alexa is, let's talk. Um, you know, but anyway, so I, I have those little hockey pucks around. Um, and, and, and to me, so I, I get that, okay? I get that. But what I've learned is there are times I just need to shut it all off. What I've learned, and this is what I want to challenge you with, what I've learned is that one of the best things for you to do is to turn off the radio, and when you're driving somewhere, reflect, talk to God, spend time with God. Instead, what do we do? Here's what some of you do, and again, I'm not not against you. I'm just trying to help you understand why you're frustrated like you're frustrated. You know what some of you do? You turn on talk radio and when you're done your blood pressure has not gone down you do not get out of the car and go oh i feel so at peace now and what you do is you're mad in a hornet and then you walk into the house with all of that what would happen if you just turned that off for a half hour i mean i know you need to get your blood pressure up once in a while but i mean what happened if you just turned it off for a while and then allowed quiet and solitude and peace and spend some time talking to God. Kids, listen to me. You, you, you go, oh, yeah, you know, you know, oh, no, get off your dinosaur. You're going to talk to us about the old days. Um, <laughs> kids, listen to me. Okay? Your music influences you. Okay? And, and I'm going to tell you why. I'm not even going to argue the Bible. Let's just push the Bible aside. Let's just talk the world of music. Okay? Do you understand that there are hundreds upon hundreds of studies that show that I can elicit emotion with certain types of music? Do you understand that malls, they still have them, and stores... 
actually have done research to find out there's certain music makes you spend more money. And if you go into restaurants, there is incredible science behind the idea of if we want you to eat fast, we play this kind of music. If we want you to eat slow, we play this kind of music. If we want you to spend more money, we create this atmosphere. If we create this, there's a reason for all of that. And for some of you, honestly, you, your, your music, it's just 24-7, and some of it is not in the realm of, oh, that makes me feel so much better. It influences you. What you watch, what you listen to, what you, what you do, it, it all impacts you. And I'm, here's my challenge to you. My challenge is to learn. In the old days, um, in, 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 early, in early Christianity in, in, in this country, particularly, there, were, there, there, started, there was a movement in which they focused on the spiritual disciplines. Okay? Um, and, and what these guys did is they took some of the ancient things that used to happen and they, 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 they categorized them and they put out disciplines to help you learn more about God and draw closer to God and learn some things about God. <clears throat> Dallas, uh, Dallas Willard um, was a big proponent of this. Um, and, and, and so there's all kinds of books out there about this. But it's interesting. One of the disciplines was silence and solitude. And the idea was that when you get rid of the noise, you can listen to God speak to your heart. But as long as there's noise, you can't hear him. And that's why I say I think one of Satan's greatest tools is to keep us busy, to keep us active, to keep stuff going so we don't have time to hear God. And my challenge to you is to practice, because here's what I know about life. <clears throat> I know that there's going to come a point in your life when a crisis is going to come. And when that crisis comes, I can tell you one thing that comes along with every crisis. Loneliness, silence, and solitude. And if you have not developed the ability to handle those situations... You kind of self-destruct. Um, you get to the point that you're afraid to be alone with yourself. You get to the point that it creates tremendous anxiety and fear in your life. Whereas for some of you, like me, over time, you've learned that silence and solitude actually brings comfort and peace and a calming. And when I watch people who've developed that in their life go through a crisis, it's amazing the difference in the response between people who have just been so big. And by the way, sometimes God, in order to get your attention, just has to kind of put the brakes on everything and force you into a situation where you don't have any choice to slow down. And, and, and I just want to challenge you along that way because it's easy to do. It is so easy to do. And, and, and Nehemiah here steps back, and he's able to take some time with him and God and allow God to develop and work things out in his life. Because when there's a problem, the first place he goes to God. The last thing is this. And, and, and I'm preaching in areas that I don't apply, so you just need to know that. Um, Nehemiah's not afraid to ask big things of God. Now, I would love to tell you that I'm the kind of pastor that has a Let's go for it. Trust God. Blah, 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 rah, 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 rah. That don't happen with me. I can pray. I can pray. 
asking God for big things for you as long as it doesn't mean anything for me. You know, oh, pastor, can you pray for so-and-so? They have cancer. Can you pray that God will heal them? Yes, I can pray for God to heal them. God, heal them. Pray big things. Yay, I'm in. But to pray for God to use you in a big way is a different ballgame. And you have to realize what Nehemiah prays right here is this. Nehemiah says, God, I need you to change the king's heart. And I need to be like me be a part of the solution to getting the walls rebuilt. So, God, I want you to use me to go help rebuild the walls. See, it's easy right now with the Harvey thing. Oh, I'm going to write him a check and send him money. That's easy. And then you don't have to think about it. How many of you are so burdened, though, that you're going, God, can you come up with a way that I can get off of work for two weeks to go and be part of a team to help them clean up? That's a different prayer. That's a much different prayer. The thing that God wants from us is people who have a willing heart to say, God, I want you to use me to be part of the solution. And that's big. Okay, I'm going to get in trouble when I go here, but i got to go here. Um, A lot of you gripe and complain about the politics of our country, but I don't see you running for an office. I don't see you getting involved sitting on a school board. Oh, you know how ugly that is? Yes, I do. But see, it's easy to pray for the change in our country. It's different to say, God, change our country, and I want to be part of that change. It's a different policy. And by the way, you go, well, I just, I'm not in a situation where I can run. Okay, so let me ask you this. We do have good Christian people in, in the politic world. What are you doing to encourage them? When's the last time you wrote them a letter and say, hey, look, thanks for serving. You're doing an awesome job. I want you to know I'll pray for you every day. It's easy to gripe about it all, but we've got good people who are getting tacked every single day, and we're not holding them up. Same thing with everything in life. Look, it's easy to gripe and complain about what's going on at work. It's a different thing to pray about being a solution to what's going on at work. And we need to be people who are the people who are jumping in to make a difference that way. My wife is very, very good at praying first on these kind of big things. I wish I could do... When my boys were dating, I mean, every girl they brought home, I'm like, oh, my new daughter-in-law. You know, first time I'd ever met him. Ah, my new daughter-in-law. Ah. I mean, I'm still Facebook friends with some of my, my boys' girlfriends. You know, and they've been married for a while now. You know, because I just, you know, they Facebook friends, and I just, I don't delete people. If you want to delete me, you delete me, but I'm not going to delete you, okay? That's just my policy thing. Um, and it's like, so anyway, so I'm still friends with some of them. And so, but anyway, because I always embraced them. I, I was like, okay, you know, my wife, on the other hand, <coughs> she would check them out. And she would make a decision in her mind whether or not this was the person that God had for them. And if you didn't make the cut, my wife would never say anything to the boys, but she would just start praying, Lord, break them up. Lord, break them up. Aaron and Alex made the cut. Never did, did Gene ever say, I prayed you away. I prayed you away. Because 
That was her way of handling it, wasn't it? And then the boys would break up, and Jean would go, yeah, I was praying that one away. And there were some great girls, there were some nice girls, nothing against those girls, but Jean just went, not a good fit, so I'm going to pray them away. And that is how my wife saw it. And, and I've watched my wife over the years, and that's what she does. She goes to prayer first, and she's, and I wish I could, I, I wish I was more like that, but that's the way she is, okay? That's her strong suit. So if you ever go to her and ask her about a problem, I'm going to tell you what she's probably going to tell you. Pray, 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 pray. And watch God do stuff, you know. Oh, you'll be okay. Um, you know, it's that idea. So as I end, I end it this way. In Nehemiah, here's what we see. We see a man who was not content to simply be aware of a problem. He allowed the need to impact his heart and his life. He takes the problem to God first. He asks some big things of God. And he asks God to do the impossible through him. And God can use you and God can use me in the same way this week. And that's our prayer. Let's pray. Lord, help us. God, it's easy sometimes to just give lip service. But, Lord, we want to go far deeper than that. Or it's easy for us to talk about all our problems and not talk to you about it. So help us to fix that this week. Lord, for some, there's so much noise in their life right now that, Lord, it's been a long time since they've enjoyed a sunrise or a sunset been a long time lord since they just turned everything off and told you all the things that they were grateful for or all the things they were appreciative of it's been a long time lord since they've been able to be quiet enough to hear your voice so so lord help us all to change that this week because we we don't want to live like that you didn't you didn't design us to live like that so help us not to and lord when this week is said and done May people see Christ in us, and may we be the solution to some of the things, Lord, that we're so burdened about. And uh, use us, Lord. These things we ask in your name. Amen. Um,